I spend time uh, having us think about that this morning. If I were to ask you what book in the Bible talks more about the love of God than any other book, uh, my guess would be we might have a few people say something like 1 John. Um, perhaps other books might come to your mind. But the book that talks more about the love of God than any book in the Bible is Deuteronomy which I think often surprises some people. Uh, If John had kept on for more than five chapters, he was on a pace probably to eclipse Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy's got 32 chapters worth of love and John has five. So uh, I think that's rather significant and something to think about that the love of God just permeates this book that for many of us would be a book about the law. And, And that's what I in many ways want to talk about. How do we understand law or how was law understood in the Old Testament How was covenant understood? Now, let me start with an illustration. Uh, Christmas morning, uh, 5 a.m., this little 10-year-old boy wakes up, eyes pop open, you know, nobody else in the house is awake. He goes, you know, out his room, down the hall, down the stairs, ricochets into the den, and there in the corner is the dream, that dream gift he has been hoping for. It is a brand-new shiny bicycle. And so back up the stairs, down the hall, wakes everybody up. The rest of the family kind of groggily moves in. And when he looks at the bicycle a second time more closely, he is a little bit disappointed because he realizes the bicycle has not been put together. And so he and I don't know what kind of family you grew up in will be patriarchal in honor of Abraham. He and dear old dad sit down and start assembling the bike or maybe in your family uh, dad started and then when it got really messed up mom fixed the bicycle or something but he and dad begin to put the bicycle together and as they are putting the bicycle together his father says now son you need to understand with this bicycle there are certain things you cannot do. You cannot ride it on the 410. You cannot build a ramp and jump it off the house. You know, nothing good ever happens when little boys say, let's build a ramp. Uh, You can't ride it through shopping malls. He gives him, if you will, bicycle instructions. Now, that, I think, is significant because very few of us, I think, if we, when we hear that story, would say, how dare that father tell the son what he can and cannot do with the bicycle? Most of us would see this as a manifestation of the love of a parent for a child because those instructions, if you will, are all to keep the little boy safe and healthy. That is the meaning of law in Deuteronomy. The term literally means, Torah means instruction or guidance, and it often was used about instruction or guidance that a parent or a father would give to a child. And it changes then how we might understand or think about how we live our lives and how we understand it. So let's take a look um, at, at some of the things we have going on here. You have, in the book of Deuteronomy, I mean, in, in, Ab- in Abraham's life, you have three key moments where covenant is talked about. In Genesis 12, that passage that was just read, it is about God and Abraham entering into a covenant, and what's fascinating about that is, in that covenant relationship, the promises of God dominate. I will give you land, I will give you descendants, I will make your name great, But with those promises, Abraham's got to respond. 
He either has to embrace them or distance himself. If he's going to get land, he has to move. Descendants will involve decisions that need to be made, and making his name great will have certain implications. In chapter 15, that's that enigmatic passage we're going to read in a minute, we see the complete commitment of God to this relationship with Abraham. That's the passage where God comes to Abraham, and then in a trance, you have God or some being moving between the animals. As enigmatic as it is, God is fully committing himself to Abraham, to the relationship. Then in chapter 17, Abraham commits himself fully. That's the passage where Abraham has himself circumcised and all of his family. So let's, we can skip this one. We just read it. And here's, cha- whoops, here's chapter 15. This one will jump, but again, remember, this is the passage that talks about, uh, as they go through, notice if you go about halfway down, he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess the land? He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram, turtle dove, young pigeon, he brought these, cut them in two, laying on each half. When the birds of prey came down on carcasses, Abram drove them away, and as the sun was going down a deep sleep, and then jump, know this for certain that your offspring shall be aliens. He talks about how tough things are going to be, but ultimately God is going to take care of him. In Hebrew, the literal language for making a covenant was to cut a covenant. And we think that in the larger world of that ancient Near East, one of the things they did to show full commitment to a covenant was they would have animals and walk between the animals, symbolically saying, may this happen to me if I do not keep my commitment to this covenant. And then we have, in chapter 17, Abram's response, and this is the circumcision passage. And so that's the world of Abraham, and the question then becomes, how does Abraham's world play itself out in the lives of his descendants? And so let's talk about Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is really, there are two things that drive Deuteronomy. One is when you read Deuteronomy, think of it as a collection of sermons from Moses. Okay, so just as you might have a collection of sermons from Mark, you have a collection of sermons from Moses. And he has a lot of interesting things to say in those sermons. The other thing, though, that is driving it, the topic of almost all of those sermons from Moses is covenant. And so I want to give you some information about what we know about covenants in the ancient world and how it might be interesting or helpful to you. And again, Moses is talking about law, but it's Torah, it's instruction or guidance. I mentioned this yesterday. When we think of law, we often think of running red lights, uh, running stop signs, you know, or more serious things like murder or robbery or whatever. But if you've got to have a bigger understanding of law as instruction or guidance, otherwise, how can, remember, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the law. How can you understand Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, uh, the exodus from Egypt as law? In what way is it instruction or guidance for the people of Israel? And so that's what we want to think about a bit. So Deuteronomy literally means the second giving of the law. 
And if you recall, the setup, the backdrop for this is the people have come out of Egypt and they are now on the verge of entering the land. And so Moses is giving them instruction or guidance just like the father would tell his little boy, now when you take this bicycle out, here are healthy ways to ride the bicycle and here are unhealthy ways to ride the bicycle. And so Deuteronomy is Moses saying to the people, when you enter the land, because he's not going with them, here are healthy ways to live and here are unhealthy ways to live. And the healthy way to live is to be faithful to the covenant that God has entered into with his people. And so in a very real sense, Deuteronomy is a fascinating book because it is addressed to people who are in transition, who are living between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And I think that becomes relevant to us because as children of God in the church, we are regularly aware we live between promise and fulfillment. We have a number of the promises of God that have been realized, and we celebrate and live in those graciously, but the ultimate promise of eternal life is out there in the future. How do we live between the promise and the ultimate fulfillment? So here you have the backdrop. Again, from a literary standpoint, it's a collection of sermons from Moses, and it also has covenant as its driving topic. But the other thing that you need to think about when you read Deuteronomy, which may surprise you, is in Deuteronomy, God is not only creator of the universe, he is sustainer. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I grew up in church, or in church where we talked a lot about God creating the universe, we didn't talk as much about God sustaining the universe, God continuing to be involved and having care for his creation. But in Deuteronomy, it is very much front and center. So in Deuteronomy, you don't really say it rains. God sends the rain. God is looking after his creation. He is taking care of things. And then you have that, but you also have this notion that not only is God creator and sustainer, God is also the giver of gifts. Now, the first one won't surprise any of us, because we all know that story well. God gives the gift of the land. But the second one may surprise us. In Deuteronomy, the law is seen as a gift that God gives his people so that they might have life and life to the fullest. Now, if you're jumping ahead and wondering how in the world can that be, since we know there are negative passages ultimately about the law, how that gets twisted is when people misunderstand the purpose of the law. And so I'll try to address that in a couple of minutes. But when the law gets turned on its head, then it ends up backfiring, and it's not the law's fault. Remember, Paul says that. The law is good. The problem's not the law. It's the way people pervert their understanding of the law. But initially in Deuteronomy, the law was given because God was saying, when you enter the land, this is the healthy way to live, the right way to live. Go this direction and things will go well. You go this direction and things will go very badly. And I'll try to play those out here in just a minute. So let's talk about a little bit about covenant. Now, this is one of those places where knowing something about our archaeology, I mentioned this yesterday, but where archaeology really pays some pretty phenomenal dividends. Uh, there are a number of uh, studies or, or discoveries that have been made, and we now know lots about covenant making 
or treaty making between nations. And essentially, in the ancient Near East, there were two types of treaties, two types of covenants. There's what we call a parity treaty. A parity treaty is where two nations enter into an agreement, and both nations are roughly equal. So we could argue about this all day, but I think when the U.S. engages Russia in a treaty, that's probably parity. We both have a lot to bring to the table, or maybe with China. But the other type of treaty is what we call a suzerain-vassal treaty. A suzerain-vassal treaty is a treaty where you have a superpower, the suzerain, the big dog, if you will, and you have a little country, a vassal. These are always initiated by the big power, by the superpower. So I've got enough American pride to say, uh, if we enter into a treaty with Nicaragua, that is probably not a parity treaty. We got a whole lot more to bring to the table than Nicaragua or Guatemala or, you know, pick another country. That would be more like a suzerain vassal. Now, if you've got that, one of the things that's most interesting is not only do we know about these suzerain vassal treaties, they always take the same form. They always have essentially the same six elements. And so that's what I want to walk you through. And we know these treaties from the Hittites. We know them from the Assyrians. We have lots of them. So you're going to wonder for the next few minutes why in the world we're talking about this. Where am I going? Hopefully we'll get there. Okay? Hang with me. So in a suzerain vassal treaty, the first thing you always have is a preamble. The suzerain identifies himself. You know, I, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And the preamble tends to be pretty lofty. Uh, my favorite is a Hittite. There's a Hittite king named Shupiluliumas. I mean, you can't do any better than a name like that. But it'll be like, you know, I, Sennacherib, or I, Shupiluliumas, king of the universe, or king of all creation. I mean, you're not modest when you're the suzerain in these things, okay? So he, the suzerain, or the great king, identifies himself. And the next thing you get is historical prologue. So, you know, I'm Uatalas, I should be Liliumas, king of the universe, and then you give your barking rights. I destroyed the Hoopshu, I destroyed the Mushu, I destroyed the Assyrians, I destroyed the Babylonians. Uh, you tell all the people you have overthrown, anyone who's still around is only there because you allowed them to survive. Okay? Because one of the things you have to, to do is establish your credentials as the suzerain. Now, the third one are stipulations. The third thing you always get in these treaties is that the suzerain lays upon the vassal stipulations. And as king of the universe, you will give me. So let's suppose Assyria enters into one of these with Israel, which they did. We have examples of those. You will give me every year 400 quarts of olive oil, 500 bushels of grain. You know, uh, Israel grew a lot of things, and so they were doing that. Okay, and but what's significant is the dominant theme in all of this is no matter what the situation, the vassal shows loyalty to the suzerain. That's the given. Loyalty is over and over. You shall only know me, and by that they mean acknowledge. Okay, so no matter what. And you may be wondering at this point, if you're a vassal, why in the world would you ever engage in one of these? 
because there are no stipulations on the suzerain other than the suzerain promises to protect the vassal no matter what. That's why it's so important to know whether the suzerain can deliver. Okay? The next thing you get is a statement about, to make sure the vassal knows what the vassal's entered into, you get statements about the public reading. And so periodically, after this covenant is made or this treaty is made, the suzerain will have a copy, and then the vassal will go home with multiple copies to be kept in different official places. And the idea will be that periodically the vassal will bring this out and read it publicly to all the people. Okay? Number five, pretty interesting. Again, we talked yesterday or last night about you're in a world in the ancient Near East where this idea is you have all sorts of gods and goddesses roaming the universe. And so to make sure that the vassal again knows what he's committed to, you have the calling of the gods as witnesses to the treaty. This is, I kind of jokingly say, this is the equivalent to, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye kind of stuff. But it's, if you don't keep this, this God is going to pound you in this way. This God is going to knock you out in this way. It tells all the things the gods and goddesses are going to do to you if you don't keep them. Now, this is where I know you think we're going crazy, okay? There's one more. The final one is a collection of curses and blessings. If the vassal is loyal, then blessing will be in the land. Everything will go well. And if, the, uh, if things do not go well, if the vassal is not loyal, then you have curses. And especially in the Assyrian treaties, they tend to be incredibly graphic. They leave no, uh, they leave no doubt. There's no vagueness about what exactly will happen to you. Now, the question is, I think you're probably sitting there asking, what does this have to do with anything that has to do with the Bible? Okay, think about, um, we do not have, we do not have any formal covenants like that in the Bible. But that thinking may be very much a part how would you explain to people the relationship between God and, pe and his people? When God enters into covenant with Abraham or with Israel or with us, it is certainly not a parity treaty. I mean, let's face it, unless we've just gone berserk on our hubris or whatever, we do not bring nearly to the table what God brings to the table. So God surely would be the suzerain and we're the vassal in this relationship. So think about Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. How does Exodus 20 begin? Not with a command, it begins with, I am the Lord your God. Preamble, he identifies himself, right? Then the next thing you get is what? Historical prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who rescued you, who delivered you. Okay? Now, again, in Hebrew, the Ten Commandments are not called the Ten Commandments. They are called the Ten Words. In fact, Decalogue, that's what it means, the Ten Words, right? The first word in what we call the Ten Commandments is not a command. The first and most important word is, I am the Lord your God. 
Okay? So, I am the Lord your God, preamble perhaps, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, that historical prologue is way too short, so hang with me. What's the third thing you would expect? We'll get back to where you can see it. Stipulations, right? And what's to be central in the stipulations? Loyalty. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not take my name in vain, which very likely means you can't manipulate me. You know, you shall not. Loyalty is central to the first half of those Ten Commandments. The second half are about having a healthy community. Okay? Um, public reading. Now, as I mentioned, we don't get a full form of any of this. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you remember at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, remember what Joshua does? He calls all the people together, and what do they do? He reads the law. Okay? And in Joshua 24, if you read it sometime, it starts with, I am the Lord your God. And then the next thing you get is Joshua says, the Lord who brought us out of Egypt, who led us through the desert, who took care of this enemy, took care of this enemy. He did this, he did this, he did this. And then you get this line, it was not by your sword or your bow or any of your power. The Lord God did all of that. Historical prologue. And then what's he called the people? Choose today whom you will serve. Make a commitment about where your loyalty lies. But you have this, Joshua chapter 8, you have it in chapter 24. In Deuteronomy, several times, Moses will say to the people, take out the law and periodically read it. In Joshua chapter 8, Joshua brings out the law and reads it. Okay? Now, here's the kicker. Number five. Obviously, in Israel, you have one God. So you're not going to call a bunch of gods and goddesses that don't exist as witnesses. So what do you do? To make sure the people know the commitment they've entered into, you make sure that you have something as a witness. In Joshua 24, Joshua looks at the people and he says, this stone, this huge rock over here, has heard everything you've said today. If you take that literally, it's nonsense. I have never met a rock that can hear. But it makes very, very good sense in a covenant context, right? Every time, that rock's not going anywhere. Every time the people go by that rock, they are reminded of the commitment. If you're familiar with the prophets, when the prophets charge God's people with having broken the covenant, they often begin with, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. Listen, O mountains and valleys. Something that's been there forever. You see that in Micah. And so over and over, what they did for this part was, look at things that have been there forever. Every time you see them, you're reminded of commitments you've made. Okay? Then the final one, sanctions. If you know the book of Deuteronomy, a huge chunk, chapters 27 and 28, lay out curses and blessings. And so it's not the only way, but it is an interesting way to look at how Israel was to understand God was her suzerain. If you look at it that way, then what does God promise? Absolute protection. If his people, if we are loyal, God promises to protect us no matter what. Okay, so key themes. 
<clears throat> we often, I, I grew up where when we talked about the qualities or characteristics of God, we would say, you know, God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, you know, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, that kind of thing. Not that he's not. But if you look in the Old Testament, the two quintessential qualities of God is he keeps promises and he's a faithful lover. And you see that over and over in Deuteronomy. The one thing you can go to the bank, if you want to know the character of God, always keeps promises. And he's always faithful and loves us. And so we're going to look at a couple of passages. Now, one of the things then that's really fascinating in Deuteronomy that I think we continue to have to grapple with is of all the people God could have chosen, why did he choose Israel? So look at this passage. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people. His treasured possession. This is the term. This is the thing if you can pull one thing out of your house when it's burning down, this is what you take. This is how God understands his people. Is not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and on and on he goes. Now, think about that. I mean, we love to, if we're honest with ourselves, we like to sort of sit around and think, um, hey, why did God choose us? And if we're not careful, it's, well, God chose us because, you know, we're smarter than everybody else, or we're better looking, or we're stronger, or, um, or the most fun one would be because we're, we're better people. We're more good than other people around us. Here, what you have God saying in both places is, you know, uh, and my, I mean, quite frankly, if you think about Israel, Israel never built anything like the Egyptians. Israel never put anything together like a highway system like the Romans. I mean, Israel pales in comparison on cultural achievements. So it's not that they were bigger, better, stronger, faster, and the kicker is, um, God then says, it's not even that you were really morally better, than everybody else. It's just everybody else was so bad, you, you look relatively a little better. I mean, that's, you talk about a backhanded compliment, that's like saying you're not as ugly as your sister or something, right? Now, I know where we want to go. We want to say, well, maybe that was then. God chose them for who he was, not for who they were, but it's got to have changed now. And yet, if we really take Paul seriously, right, he says the same thing. The danger about thinking about being chosen by God is, if we're not careful, it results in arrogance. And biblically, the election or being chosen by God should result in humility. Of all the people God could have chosen, why did he choose us? And that comes through over and over if you think about it, right? It's in Deuteronomy all the way through Scripture. We are the least likely candidates to turn the world upside down. And yet, it's because of who God is. So you have the gift of the law. Again, as I mentioned, the law is saving grace. The other is the law in Deuteronomy is not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's basically being in right relationship with God. How do you know how to behave? You look at the way God has treated you, and you treat people that way. As you read Deuteronomy, it is stunning how many times it says things like, and you shall take care of the poor people in your midst because you were poor and God took care of you. You shall take care of those who don't have power in your midst because when you were powerless, God took care of you. I mean, that's, that's pretty slick, right? How do we know what to do in difficult situations? We look at the way God has treated us when we've been undeserving and treat others that way. 
And that's how the law is understood. And so Israel's response is, the, one of the key elements to being faithful is memory. Because the danger is the moment when we quit telling the story and reminding ourselves of what God has done for us, we begin to think we've done it ourselves. And obedience, in many ways, is having a good memory. In contrast, unfaithfulness is being forgetful or disobedient. In Deuteronomy, the worst sin is attributing what God has done for you to someone else. It's attributing all the things God has done to the Baals or to Baal. And I would say that continues today. The worst sin, the most dangerous sin for us is crediting someone or something else with what God has done for us. Often it's crediting ourselves. And so that's where I want to go. This is, let me skip this one because I want to get, make sure I get. This is uh, called, this is a famous passage in Judaism. This is called the yoke of the kingdom. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. This is what, if you're wondering, you know, if you've never seen what tefillin, you know, when you're binding them on your hands or your head, this is an Orthodox rabbi. This is more contemporary, but there are little passages of scripture in those. Again, this is uh, at the Western Wall. Side note, um, uh, typically, it's the least religious Jews who do the bar mitzvah at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. You're supposed to do it in the home, but, uh, but this gives you an idea. This is the rolling out of the scroll. These are the little tefillin. They're called parshiot. So here is um, one of my favorite passages, and this is where I want to end. <clears throat> when your children ask you in time to come, what's the meaning of the decrees and statutes and ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord displayed before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our lasting good so as to keep us alive as is now the case. If we diligently observe this entire commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, we will be in the right. Okay, uh, I love this passage. This is uh, for all the parents, grandparents in the crowd. The question is, when the kids come and say, why do we have to go to church? Why do I have to be baptized? Why do I have to participate in the Lord's Supper? Why do I have to do this? Why can't we do X and not, why do we have to do Y? Um, I know a time-honored is because I said so, okay? And if we're not careful, we sometimes get in the trap of why do we have to do something because God said so. I think if we go down that road, you're hard put not to see the Bible as a bunch of rules and regulations, and then we fall into the trap of thinking the degree to which we live up to those rules and regulations, we are good or righteous. Quite frankly, though, in that view, that means the story begins with us, what we are doing. In Deuteronomy 6, 
Moses says, when your kids come and ask you, what are these statutes, what are these ordinances, what does the law mean, notice where Moses says you start the story. You start the story by saying to the child, let me tell you what God has done for us. The God we worship came and brought us out of Egypt, undeserved, led us through the Red Sea, took care of us through the desert, led us into this land, gave us this, did this, did this, did this, this, this. All of these things God has done for us, and now, because of what God has done for us, this is how we respond. I tell people, I grew up in a pretty traditional family for my day. Uh, I did not grow up in a democracy. You know, we did not take family votes. The kids did not engage. My parents made the decisions. Now, some today look at that and go, oh, you know, what, a monarchy or something like that or a dictatorship. But, but I never thought it was bad because the one thing I never doubted, even when I got frustrated, the one thing that was never in doubt was that my parents loved me. I may have thought they were hopelessly out of date and they simply didn't get it or whatever, but I never doubted that they loved me and they wanted what was best for me. And I think if we get to where we start telling the story that way, when people say, why do you do what, we, what you do, if we start with, let me tell you what God has done for us, it transforms that discussion. Because because of what God has done for us in all these wonderful ways, how could I respond any other than to respond in obedience? This God who has given me life, remember, God not only is the creator of life, he's the sustainer of life. If God has given me life spiritually, surely he knows how to sustain my life spiritually. And I would suggest that's where we want to go with our children, with the next generation, is where we begin the story. In scripture, the story always begins with God. And we are responding to what God has done. If we think in those ways, it transforms how we think about it. The way I would put it is in the Old Testament, the deliverance from Egypt is first. First God delivers his people, and then you have Mount Sinai where he says, this is what the relationship will look like. If you flip those and get Mount Sinai before you get the exodus from Egypt, you've got trouble. Just like in the New Testament, the crucifixion and the resurrection come before Pentecost. God first delivers us and rescues us, and then he says, this is what the relationship will look like for a healthy community. When we decide we're going to put Pentecost first or the rules and regulations before what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we have trouble. So let me, uh, I think Deuteronomy is this wonderful book. And Abraham, as you're starting on a series with Abraham, is a wonderful opportunity to ask the big questions in life. Who are we? I would suggest we are radical and we should be radical in a society that when the answer to the question starts first with, let me tell you about me, for us as Christians, who are we, first and foremost, is rooted in who God is. And we receive our identity as a derivative from our relationship with God. The question, why do we do what we do, we do what we do because of what God has done for us.
And then I would even say, if you read Deuteronomy, we didn't cover chapter 8, but read Deuteronomy chapter 8 sometime. Why do we have what we have? Deuteronomy 8, you know it because there's a famous line in there. It's man does not live by bread alone, which Jesus quotes. But if you look at the whole passage, it's a memory forgetfulness. It says, here's the danger. If you're not careful, after a while and you forget the story, you look around and you say, hey, I built this house. I planted these vineyards. I harvested these crops. I did this. I did this. And you have forgotten that it was God who gave you the land and the houses and the vineyards. And I would suggest for us, that's really also important with our children. Why do we have what we have? We have what we have because it is a gift from God who has blessed us. Then the question becomes, what are we going to do with these gifts and blessings God has given to us to be a blessing to others? That's what Abraham is about. It's not simply that God is blessing Abraham, it's God is blessing Abraham so he can be a blessing to others. How often do we think about ourselves as a conduit of the blessings of God for others? Well, thank you so much. You've been very attentive. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, again, I've loved spending the weekend with you. Thank you so much. Was that not fantastic? Man, appreciate very much, Dr. Mars, everything you said. And I just uh, look forward to some good things. Again, we're going to be here this afternoon at 3 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall to continue this study. Uh, and he will uh, speak during the sermon and the worship. Let's go ahead and break. Uh, 9.15 until, uh, I mean, uh, until 10.30. So let's break.